Holy Father, set the stage for today. I pray that you prepare each of our hearts. There would be an expectancy within us that we would not just be in a church service, but that we would be in your presence and like clay, vulnerable to the potter, ready and malleable before the potter. Take us deeper. Take us onward and upward. Lord, there's some place you want to take us today, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that there be no resistance in us, that we would prove ready for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. We had a, a very special week here at Ellerslin. I know that that might be just sort of the statement of every week uh, because they're all very, very special, but they're very unique. And this is a very unique week, and if I was going to try and describe what it was about the week... It wasn't something that was plotted and planned. Uh, It was something that God seemed to just bring about. And it was another one of those weeks where we were on our faces before the living God. And there was a yearning and a hunger to see his glory. To see him accurately. To not see him as the God that we have invented in our own hearts and the way we want God to be. But to make ourselves vulnerable to see God the way he is. And when you see God the way he is, you realize how much bigger he is than your little smallish notion. I'm not saying your smallish smallest notion isn't like a puzzle piece in the overall picture of who God is. But oftentimes when we're worshiping just that little puzzle piece, we have a tendency to add our little things and finish God off and say, I think I have him figured out. You know, we put a little wig on him and dress him up and it's like, I have my God. And it wasn't that it, what you started with wasn't true. It's just that you stopped going after the fullness of who God is. There is so much more to our God, and that's what we were focused on this week, and I tell you what, it silences you. When you see it and when you behold the living God, all it does is cause you to crumple to your knees and go silent before the, the magnitude of his person. But we had one day, I think it was Thursday or Friday, I don't was it Thursday, uh, where... Well, I don't know. Maybe it was Friday, too. Thursday was the day where we were all on our faces. Then Friday we started, I think I opened it up at the very beginning, and I said, does anyone have anything to say about yesterday? What was it, two hours later? We realized I wasn't going to get a message in that morning, and we uh, broke for lunch. And even after we broke for lunch, we didn't really break for lunch. Actually, someone else came up to the uh, microphone and started it all over again. But... uh, it was an amazing time. It was beautiful. I, had, I wanted to get a couple clips from that to play. I know we have one. Uh, and so, Ben, if you could play it. This is uh, from a man that uh, came up to the front to speak. I wanted to give you guys just a little peek. Who's coming? Big Dave. Go get him, Dave. I haven't a clue as to why I'm up here right now. I said a very specific fleece before the Lord that he answered very precisely. And so I'm here right now. I came here as a very stable person. I was happy because this was a very stable place. But lately, God has been showing me things that would make many of you in here think that I'm completely crazy. And I'm thankful for the amazing wife that I have who does not think that I'm crazy. (laughs) 
But I think that what I'm supposed to say is that part of what God wants from us here is that he wants to raise up a generation of people who will pray to speed his coming. That there is something big, as Mike said, that's happening here that's different from anywhere else that I've ever been in any other way that I've sought the Lord. And it's different than simply on an individual level. That what he wants us to do is to enter his fire, to be refined by his fire, to get rid of everything in our lives that has to go, do it now, get on our knees, and pray to speed his coming. This isn't about us. We've heard that five times today. This is not about us. Ambition has to die here. We have to get on our knees, and we have to pray for his kingdom and his glory. Just a little taste. I actually wanted a few more uh, clips, but we just haven't had time to uh, make it happen. But it was a very special day. And I think all of us have sensed very clearly the refining presence of God. When God is truly in our midst, we have to go. We can't linger around. It can't be about us. It can't be about our future, our fame, our fortunes. It has to be about God, his glory. The fact that he needs to be seen. He is the only answer. Eric Ludi can have truth stowed inside of him, and I can bring that truth to bear. I cannot save anyone. Only Jesus can. And so what this world needs isn't Eric Ludi. It isn't 55 students at Ellerslie. It's Jesus Christ in Eric Ludi and 55 students filled with the life of Jesus. And they're no longer their own. They're bought with a price. And this message that they bring is the life of Christ that is oozing out of them because they can't hold it in. That's Christianity. We have a message today called immovable happens to be one of those words that I really like. There's certain words in the English language that uh, sort of stir my spirits and get, get the growl going inside of me. Immovable is just one of them. There needs to be more worship songs with the, with the word immovable in it because it is one of the most pronounced truths of the Bible that those that enter into Christ become that word. The essence of it, the explanation of it on planet Earth. We will not budge for anything but God. God himself, the interesting thing about it, the reason I can speak with such authority on the fact that we as Christians are to be immovable is because the God that we adhere to describes himself as immovable. He is a rock. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In him is no variance and no shadow of turning. He is constant, he is consistent, and he is unchanging. Our God, get this, does not evolve. He does not change with time. He does not evolve to fit the culture in which he's in currently. It's like, you know, 2,000 years ago, our God, you know, he handled his people a little differently. But now he's adapted, what? Did he adapt to our culture? No, our culture is constantly attempting to push itself away and pull itself away from the living God. And so when culture changes, it's not God who's changing. And when God begins to diminish and we say, you know what, we don't really want God to be described this way anymore. When I read the word of God, it's actually offensive to this generation. You know, I read the New Testament today and it's actually coming across as rather politically incorrect. So should we then propose that God adapts to our generation? Is that our proposal? God is unchanging. He's already made that clear. And he's saying, why don't you join me in this? 
Because a Christian has always been defined as the very same thing. It hasn't altered. It doesn't change from generation to generation of what a Christian is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a representative of an unchanging God. And God's truth doesn't alter for each generation. One of the proposals that's been made in our generation by uh, certain factions of the church which actually hold sway over most of the church today, the best-selling books in all Christendom come from this faction, this mentality, this view, is that God does evolve and his word does evolve. So when I say that God doesn't evolve, you need to realize I'm standing against the tide of our Christian culture. And I don't mind doing it because the word of God backs me up. They have nothing to support their claims because they have to go extra biblical to do it. They have to go based on emotion, based on philosophy, based on what they deem would be most acceptable to the era in which they live. And I say, I don't care what men think. All I care about is what God thinks. Why in the world would we buckle under because men say that's not right? Well, guess what? God says that you would say that. He knows that you will disagree with him. And he says, you're wrong. He's right. Christianity starts with us bending our knee and proclaiming that fact. I'm wrong. Something's wrong in here, God. What's wrong with me? You're right, God. Something's right about you and you're the only one that can correct what is wrong in me. So the proposal is, we have issues that God has spoken very clearly on in Scripture. And if the Word of God doesn't evolve, you know what that means? That means that God is still in that position. But if God is still in that position, you know, he has some very strong statements against sexuality and the perversions of sexuality and male-male uh, issues of sexuality, female-female issues of sexuality that no one is allowed to talk about anymore these days. And guess what? God stamped his opinion in the word of God. He revealed it. And he says, this is where I stand. I know how I created men and women, and I'm not changing my mind about it. I know exactly what I did, and just because you are given over to sin in the flesh does not mean I need to cater to it. But what we have is a proposal which says that everyone's getting it all wrong. They're focusing on the fact that homosexuality is a sin. But what we need to realize is that God is love. And if God is love, he would understand that, that these people just need to be accepted. If they're going to come into the church, they need to realize that they need to be accepted first. And I say, these people need to realize that God is right and they are wrong. They need to realize that they're in defiance to the living God, not just those that practice homosexuality, those who practice sin, which is every single person on planet Earth. That's just one illustration. But the issue is, we are trying to evolve God, evolve his truth to say he didn't really mean that, or if he did back then, he doesn't mean it now. Okay, and if... I know that it might sound like Eric's making some stuff up here. I mean, does the church really think that? Oh, yes, they do. In fact, I was going to read a little portion out of, I don't usually reference my own books. Okay, it seems a little strange. But uh, I have a little section in here I just wanted to read real quick. Pastor Bell is a fantastic and very convincing writer. But he is also a self-acknowledged, quote-unquote, truth stretcher. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound very good now, does it? No, he's, an, he's not an outright liar. It's just that his book, Velvet Elvis, in the book, Velvet Elvis, he likens truth to the springs on a trampoline. These springs stretch up, down, and all around, depending upon who happens to be jumping on the trampoline. To Pastor Bell, truth is supposed to be stretched. After all, according to him, that is the very essence of its springy nature. 
Truth, according to our friend Rob, conforms to culture and to an individual's needs, and it seems to do all sorts of wild gymnastic-like twists and turns when coming out of his mouth or his pen. Since Pastor Bell is making statements that make me squirm, let me make a statement that would certainly make him squirm. Truth does not stretch. It does not adapt. It does not placate. The Word of God is unchanging and does not shift in its meaning from generation to generation. Oh, we might want it to, but like God, it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know, I know, I sound like some raving fundamentalist with wire-rimmed glasses waving around a 55-pound Bible. But even at risk of being lumped in with all those dour-faced modernists, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say, here I stand. The emergent movement has proposed an idea of springy truth. It actually mocks truth that is unchanging, and it calls it brickianity. Brickianity, it's a mocking term. And I would like to propose that there is nothing in all of Scripture that proposes the idea that truth adapts. Not one statement. There is not one statement that says that truth is like a spring. However, there are a lot of statements that say truth is a rock. And it is not movable. That it does not alter to fit the whims and the tastes of a generation. If this generation is going to be saved, it needs to come head on with the reality that God is who he says he is. And what is revealed in his word is unchanging and unalterable. And every syllable of it counts. That's where I stand, and that's where I'm going to encourage you as a church to stand. Because you want to find freedom over the enemy and all his tactics, you must have this truth. The enemy plays upon the malleability of the church today to alter and to shape it based on their emotions and their feelings. What do I feel is true? It doesn't matter what you feel. What does God say is true? And if you stand on that, it's a rock, and guess what? The enemy has no inlet. It has no access to your life. If you stand and you stand unbending, the enemy has nothing on you. Your weapon is truth. But if you take it off and you begin to take on feeling and emotion and what philosophy, you might have an element of truth in your philosophy. But error mixed in with truth dilutes it and makes it powerless. We want an undiluted gospel. The undiluted gospel is what will save you and it's what will save this world. We don't back down, and we don't let the truth of Jesus Christ be altered before our very eyes. Remember, I've said this to you before. This is our watch. We are responsible for truth in our generation. Don't wait for someone else to stand up. You must stand up. You must have the truth of Jesus Christ riveted, drilled into the bedrock of your soul. Then you can see clearly to help others. Let's go through this. First of all, I wanted to give a couple illustrations of this as we deal with immovable. There's certain things that have happened in my life that have set the stage for this truth to go deep within me. First of all, I was, and I've told the students this, but I suffered with extreme anxiety when I was in ministry, the first eight years of ministry. In fact, the first year uh, of marriage, uh, so we're going back 15 and a half years ago, almost uh, 15, 15 years ago from right now, Uh, I was laying on the floor of my condo in Michigan, paralyzed, and because I'd forgotten to pack my grill on the back porch. I mean, it's just a ridiculous, embarrassing story. But long and short, I didn't understand how to be constructed and fortified in my soul. And when anxiety came, when fear came, I found myself just literally being brought to my knees beneath it. And I was on my back, paralyzed. Leslie's looking at me going, what's wrong? What's wrong? I couldn't even speak. 
I literally gave way to anxiety, and it had me. It really did. It had me. And for the first eight years of our ministry, it had me. Before we'd go out on the stage and be speaking in front of thousands, I'd be in the back, paralyzed on the ground with an anxiety attack. It's ridiculous. It's preposterous to think that that is normal Christianity. You can have the truth in your head, but your life is defeated. I say, no. And I remember uh, the realization when I was watching something in regards to John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, okay? And it was about the Bay of Pigs. And I remember feeling as I was watching them have to negotiate the deal of what they were going to do that was going to impact millions of lives, and I found myself starting to get paralyzed. That same old paralysis of anxiety. And it wasn't even me. I was just watching them make the decisions. And God spoke to me very clearly in this process. Eric, I have a calling for you, and you're not ready for it. Look at you. (laughs) He was right. I was a disaster. If there was ever the moment where I needed to take the helm and take the lead and be able to carry significant weights on my shoulders, guess what? I'd collapse beneath them. A leader must be able to carry weight. You must be able to take difficulty. How in the world are you supposed to make it through the challenges that are lying up ahead of you if you're going to collapse under them at every turn? It's not Christianity. There's something more. But we must go after it. And I remember reading an Elizabeth Elliot book. I think it was called Passion and Purity. I think it was Passion and Purity. And she made a comment that God took her through a season of her life to train her in tensile strength. And it's not tinsel strength, like the stuff, the stuff you stick on a, a Christmas tree. Tensile strength, T-E-N-S-I-L-E. Tensile strength, and it's the strength of the soul. It's the way rope and springs, ironically springs, here we are talking about springs, uh, are measured. In other words, how much difficulty and weight and stress can a rope handle before it snaps? That's its tensile strength. And so you stick a big boulder, tie a big boulder to a rope, hang it over a cliff, and how long and how much weight can it endure? And God says, how much weight can your soul endure? The word in the Greek is hupomon. It's usually translated patience, which doesn't mean that to us. But it's the ability to endure great difficulty for great lengths of time. And I would say, where are we at in our tensile strength today in the church? Start with yourself instead of looking outward and saying, yeah, they stink. Well, how about you? Because this is the question for each and every one of us. We have it easy here in America, we think. But the challenge is we don't have enough testing to our soul to build the strength of soul for the tests that will come. If you want to be frontlines Christianity, if you want to see this world turned upside down for Jesus Christ, you better get some tinsel inside of your soul. So we've talked about it as students here, how that's built. It's built in every day making a choice to take the little teeny weight that you feel, instead of shrugging it off and saying, oh, I don't want to carry that right now. Embracing it with a smile and saying, tensile strength. God, build me. Build me stronger through this today. Whether it's your alarm clock in the morning, tensile strength. All right, you get up with a smile on your face and say, God, build me. God, build me. God, build me. You take every moment in your life and he begins to build you stronger. I was dealing with the fact that I, like, for instance, you get that one letter in the mail, you're having a good day. And then you get that one letter in the mail. And I don't know if any of you have ever received that quote-unquote letter or that phone call or that comment from someone, but it can ruin an entire good day. Okay, I mean, it was a great day. You were on top of the world. You were thinking, okay, I, you know, I'm starting to feel like I'm together. And then what happens? You get the letter or you get the phone call or you get the little comment. It's a little subtle comment. The person didn't probably mean anything of it. They're just giving you some information. Oh, did you hear? 
I don't want to hear. So my question is this. When I would get the letter, when I would get that phone call, when I would get the little comment, I know how I would respond. My paralysis would usually flow out of those situations. It was the entry point for anxiety and fear. Are you protected from this? Or do you find yourself vulnerable at every turn? And so your emotions are completely based on the fact that you're ignorant of all the terrible things that are really happening in your life. Or can you stare straight in the face every difficulty in your life and smile back? That's my challenge to you today because if you're looking for that sort of life, you can have it. It's a promise of the gospel and it's called immovability. You are not daunted. You are not intimidated by any factor around you. It doesn't make any difference to you. Why? Because your feet are firmly planted on something. And that something that you are planted on will not move. And it doesn't matter if the mountains crumble to the sea and the earth and sky peel away. That rock that you're on still stands. And I don't know what it would look like in a movie, but you're standing on a rock. The winds are, are blowing against you. The mountains literally pick up and are thrown. And the earth and sky peel back. And there you stand. And in the midst of all the universe, there is a rock with this one person on it. That's Christianity. Christianity knows that it cannot be moved if it keeps its feet on Jesus Christ and stays right where God planted them. They will not be moved no matter what. Second story I wanted to give you was more of an, <clears throat> a story of when I was, when Leslie and I were going through this season, we were realizing that we lacked the ability to handle the bad news. Okay? It, you know, when you measure yourself against other people and you say, well, I handle better news, bad news better than them, that, that's not the way to handle it. Look at Scripture and say, how does God say that we should handle all the tidings around us? That's what they're called, evil tidings. Okay? And when evil tidings come, how does it affect you? I remember reading the biography of Hudson Taylor, and one of the statements about Hudson Taylor in this story, basically, it's the people that observed his life, and they were giving testimony of what they witnessed in this man. He was the great missionary to China that started the China Inland Mission. One of my favorite men that has ever existed. I have a son named Hudson. Okay, so that pays the ultimate compliment to Hudson Taylor. Hudson asks, asked me during the morning, he says, tell me another story about Hudson Taylor. So we just shared a story this morning about Hudson Taylor. Uh, but this isn't the story. Uh, Hudson Taylor was known by those that knew him and, and those that observed him as being a man who was immovable of soul. He was a man of great tensile strength. He was a man that no matter what, they said he would go in to deal with his business for the day and he would have a stack of letters. And those letters would talk about other missionaries that were just martyred in China. They would talk about extreme financial blows to his ministry. They would talk about other horrible things that were evil tidings. We all know what those things come as. They come in different packages every day. But they're bad news. And it says that Hudson Taylor, with an unflinching soul, would respond to each one, put them aside, and come in and worship his king. He was unflinched. He was unshaken. He was immovable. It's the reason I named my son Hudson. You know what? We, Hudson means son of Hugh. Okay? That means nothing in the Ludi household. But Hudson, in that sense, you know what it means to us? This is our definition for the name Hudson. One of great tensile strength. 
It is a man who is immovable. So when I'm giving this message, you need to realize I named my son after the substance of this message. That's how important this is to me. And what God has built in me, I understand it. I can taste it. I've seen it grow within me. And there's a man named Reese Howells that we talk a lot about here at the school. An amazing man of faith. In fact, most of the students should be getting fairly well along in the book, uh, Reese Howells' Intercessor. And Reese Howells, there's this one story where God clearly speaks to him and a, a man named Joe who had tuberculosis that God was going to heal Joe. And so they were standing in faith in a rock-solid confidence that it was done. They, were actually, they weren't even praying about it anymore. They knew it was accomplished in the heavenlies. This is, this is quite the scene. Okay, so he knows it's going to happen. He has the clear, concrete confidence that it's going to happen. And they even had a time. Joe said, I, I feel it's going to happen at this exact time. And so what, what transpires is Joe, at that exact time, I think it was in the morning sometime, uh, Reese House is in a separate room, and Joe was supposed to just come in and, and announce the fact that he was healed. Well, Joe comes in a few minutes after that, with a towel wrapped around his you know, body, and he's sort of all dour and morose, and he says, nothing happened. Nothing happened. So what does Reese Howells do? This is my whole point for sharing this story. When you know God is doing something, and yet all that is in the natural testifies of the opposite, what is your response? Because that's what you could call evil tidings. It's like, that's rather depressing. And what is the first bait? See, God doesn't come through. You've put your trust in something that is not able to stand up to the task. God will fail you. This is the voice that immediately starts coming in, which is why most people don't want to put their feet on that rock. They're afraid of being disillusioned with God. The number one reason people don't pray specific prayers is because they're afraid of God not answering them. And as a result, they give no, no opportunity for God to prove his faithfulness. So what does Reese Howes do? You need to realize Reese Howes is a man of extraordinary faith, even at this time in his life. He has seen amazing things happen in his life. He's seen, not literally, but in the equivalent, mountains picked up and thrown into the sea. So what's he going to do? He says, Joe, let me be for a second. I need to talk to God about this. So he goes to God. And basically, if I was going to nutshell it for you, God says, do you believe me? Do you believe me that this is accomplished? Reese says, yes. Then I want you to go to the telegraph office because everyone back home in England was waiting to hear the news that Joe was healed because when Reese Howe stood for something, it was as good as done. That's his faith. He knew of the prayer answering God. That's why you have to read the story about him. It's unbelievable. So Reese, do you believe that it's done, that it's accomplished? I do. Then go to the telegraph office and telegraph home the word victory. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know where you stand on this one. But most of us want all the natural events to line up before we're going to do something crazy like that. But you know what faith is? Faith is seeing something that others can't see. It's beyond the natural realm. It's in the heavenly realm. And when you see it, you believe it. And then you start living accordingly. That's what your entire Christian life is based on. You start by seeing the crucified Christ and the risen Christ. And you say, that was for me. And you take it as your own. And that's what changes you. But most of us stop there and we never see anything else in the spiritual realm. We never see anything else that God is doing in this earth. As a result, we never take it by faith. Well, Reese Howes had it. And so he went to the telegraph office trembling. 
But he would not move his feet off of that rock. And he typed in victory. And I don't know how much longer later, but it says all heaven came down upon Joe and healed him. But are you going to be movable? Most of us would have to acknowledge, yes. It doesn't take much to move us. But God wants to make you into someone who is immovable, who is not going to base anything upon the natural realm and what it's saying and what it's screaming. It doesn't matter what's in the bank account. It doesn't matter about your feelings. It doesn't matter about what the public opinion polls are saying. It doesn't matter. All that matters is God's opinion on it. That is all that matters. And so when you're weighing it in your life, you say, well, what does God say? Well, what about this, though? I mean, look, you have no money in your bank account. How in the world are you going to keep going in this direction? What does God say? Will you be quiet? What does God say? That is all that matters. And if God says panic, well, guess what? I would encourage you to panic. (laughs) For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now one thing we know about scripture is that when it's used in an illustration, like for instance a house, do you know what the house is in the New Testament? There's an individual body is likened into a house. Christ's body himself is likened into a house. Your body is likened into a house. The congregation of believers is likened into a house. This is the house he's referring to. It's not just a physical house. Like, you know, I really feel that the reason I need to build my house on a, on a foundation is because God says it in, in Matthew here in 7. Well, you can extrapolate that, but that's not the primary meaning. Your house in the natural is going to last a lot better if it's built upon the rock as opposed to sand. However, what this is saying is a spiritual meaning. You need to build your house, your life, upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Because when those winds blow, when those evil tidings come, and they come against you, and they will feel like wind, they'll feel like a tempest, they'll feel like a tornado that is rushing against your house, will you stand or will you collapse? And for most of us, our testimony thus far in our Christian life is that we fell. And I say no more. That pattern shifts. And it might as well shift today. There's no waiting. There's no period that you need to go through of falling again. You get up and you say, I'm putting my feet on the rock of Jesus Christ and I'm moving forward from there. And I'm not going to budge from this position. No disgrace. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. It's referring to a scripture in the Old Testament. It talks about the coming Messiah who is the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the house. He's the elect and precious cornerstone. And he that believes on this cornerstone, which we know is Jesus Christ, 
shall not be confounded. So I want to just unpack for you what the word confounded is. Katiskuno. I, I know I just messed it up because there's like a funny sound in it. Katiskuno. I can I can never do the Hebrew sound though. Uh, I'm sorry. This is the Greek. To be put to shame, to be disgraced, to have hope meet with failure. Okay, to be put to shame, to be disgraced, to have hope meet with failure. Let's go back here. It says, and he that believeth on him, he that roots his spiritual feet on this rock, will not be put to shame, disgraced, and have their hope meet with failure. I want you to know that that is a promise straight out of the word of God. And if I could add this extra little touch to that, and God cannot lie. When God says it, you can take it to the bank. It is transactable currency in the heavenly realms. It is good, and God is good to match it. We, our entire job is to believe it. And say, I believe it. God said it. I will not be put to shame. So here I stand. The nature of rock, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This is speaking of God. In fact, in the context, is talking about the father of lights who gives good and perfect gifts to his children. And the part I want you to focus on here is his, the nature of rock, with whom is no variableness. He doesn't alter. He doesn't change. He doesn't handle one of you different than he does someone else. He doesn't take care of this generation different than he takes care of this one. There's no variableness in him. His truth doesn't alter. And so, you know, I'm going to really emphasize this truth for this season, but I'm going to downplay this one. You know, it's sort of tough to have uh, justice and mercy both be at, at large within God's nature. So I'm going to be merciful in this generation. Then I'm going to be a God of justice in this generation. He is both and all the time. The tensions that we don't understand and how, to, how they all work, he understands it. And they work perfectly in him, and he doesn't need to dislodge an aspect of his nature to be God to us. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. That's the nature of rock. I, in, in Braveheart of Gospel, I actually talk about this, and I talk about the fact that there's a hike in, in Estes Park, known as Lily Lake, and the students, I think, have been there. And there's this rock at the top, and I think, did you guys see the big rock? Okay. So there's this big rock at the top. Less than I have loads of pictures on this rock. It's just a great view. And so the interesting thing is 10 years I've known this rock. And in 10 years, is that thunder? Oh, it's an airplane. I was going to say that is one long thunder. In 10 years that I have been visiting this rock, it is not altered. It has not changed one bit. Now that's 10 years. But I would hazard a guess in the last hundred, this rock hasn't changed. Well, that's strange because that's different generations. Are you saying that that rock presented itself the same exact way to a previous generation? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying the rock doesn't care. It doesn't care about how it's perceived. People will go to that rock and climb on it. But that rock doesn't think, oh, what, what do I need to do to be uh, in, sort of in sync with this next generation of hikers? The rock doesn't alter. And I would say for the past thousands of years, that rock is the same. Well, that's quite a bold statement. You haven't been around for those thousands of years. Yeah, but I know the nature of rock. And rock doesn't alter. Rock is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amatathetos. I uh, know I didn't get it completely right. Amatathetos. Ah, there it is. Amatathetos. 
It means immutable, fixed, unchanging, unalterable, without variance. Okay, let me show you where this word is used in the New Testament. In Hebrews, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the amathetos, the fixed, unchanging, unalterable, and without variance nature of God. So to show unto the heirs of promise this fact that he is fixed and unalterable in his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two fixed, unalterable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now that's not the easiest scripture to understand, so I'm going to bake it down into this. He promised, and he cannot lie. And in Hebrews, he says, this is incontrovertible, this is immutable, this is unchanging, this is fixed. This is who God is. He is a rock. He is immutable. He doesn't vary. And these are two things that you can always know for a fact. He promised, and when he promised, go to his word. If you ever see a promise, you can know that he's not altering it. He promised, and he cannot lie, which means that you know you can come to him on his promise. And he, can, he doesn't just say it for one person. Go, oh, you know what? I overspoke there. I, I didn't really mean to say that. And so you're, you're sort of taking it out of context here. If God promises it, it's as good as done. He cannot lie. Fixed, fastened, and firm. Psalm 112. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. Did you just hear that line there? Shall not be afraid of evil tidings. Well, wouldn't that be amazing? If you literally had no fear and anxiety, any news could come your way. It doesn't matter who has just been announced to be the president of the United States. It doesn't matter what Wall Street is saying. It doesn't matter what the bank account statement that you just got in the mail says. It doesn't matter what that other little note comes your way. It doesn't matter that they're firing at work. It doesn't matter what the news is. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. Why? His heart is fixed. Trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. Kun. To be fixed, fastened, established, stable, secured, firm, and resolute. His heart is fixed, fastened, established, stable, secured, firm, and resolute. Now, you could look at that and say, well, how is it fixed, fastened, established, stable, secured, firm, and resolute? Because that would be sort of a nice feature. Could you imagine having a heart that is so stable, it is rooted and grounded on rock? You come up to it and push it. It doesn't go anywhere. It's like, hey, look. So you push a little harder, you climb on it and try and bend it. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It doesn't matter how bad those evil tidings are. This heart is fixed. Why is it fixed? What is its secret? It's fixed because the God who it is fixed to is unchanging. When you fix yourself to God, you are fixed. He 
doesn't alter. He doesn't move. When bad things are happening on this earth, look up at God's face and ask yourself the question, what is his response? Is he panicking? Is he rubbing his hands together in fear? Going, oh no, I overlooked that. What are we going to do? That guy just got into the presidency. Oh no! If God's doing that, then I want to reiterate the fact that we probably should be too. Because God is a lot bigger than us, and if he's panicking, run! He is not panicking, and we know that. Read Psalm 2 afresh. He's laughing. Samach. Samach means braced, sustained, upheld, undergirded, and supported. Okay, now let's go back to this. So that goes with established, okay? It's a, it's a weird translation, established. But trusting in the Lord, his heart is both fixed and it is, let me get to Samach. It's braced, it's sustained, it's upheld, it's undergirded and supported. Any idea what is doing this for the, that heart? I mean, how is it getting this, you know, strength, this brace, this sustenance, this upholding, this undergirding? It's Jesus, It's God Almighty, the rock of ages. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Not a distant help. I love that statement. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. In other words, this is a pretty bad tiding that is coming your way. Uh, Eric, I just want you to know that uh, the Rocky Mountains just got picked up and thrown into the sea. Uh, All uh, the world is basically crumbling into nothingness, and you're just sort of standing here. And I am not going to be afraid. I I don't know too many humans that are going to be able to stand in that situation and not at least cringe a little. But what David is describing here doesn't hold any cringe. It has an all-out immovable confidence in the reality of his God. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, there is a river the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. Which, by the way, is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the river that comes out from the throne of God, out, out of the holy place. There's a river the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Moat. To be moved, shaken, overthrown, or dislodged. I don't know if you heard it in Psalm 46. We will not be moat. We will not be moved, shaken, overthrown, or dislodged. By the way, this is a promise. Okay, I'm going to go into that because how I'm going to finish today is I'm going to show you the scriptural foundation throughout the scripture. I actually removed tons of them. But just say it over and over and over again that the righteous will not be moved. The question is, do you believe it? Because you only get that which you are able to take by faith. 
If you don't have faith for it, did you know that if you don't have faith, you don't get Jesus Christ? That's how it works. It's those who believe on him that are saved. So if you don't believe in his ability to hold you and sustain you, guess what? You have none of this. This is not your reality, which is why most of us are sitting on sand. And when the winds and the rains are beating against us, we're crumpling under it. Get your feet on rock. You understand that your God is rock? Stick your feet on that rock and be confident that he is very near in his help and his desire to save. He ever liveth to make intercession for you and he will save you to the uttermost. That was a good thing to clap at. Okay, so here, let me put it all together for you. His heart is kun, fixed, fastened, and firm. This is talking about the righteous man. And samak, upheld and undergirded. I will not be mote, moved, shaken, or overthrown, or katashino, put to shame or disgraced. There is your mantra. You say it like your own Davidic psalm flowing out of your heart. This is true. Why? Because God has said it is. And when I fix myself on my king, I will not be shaken. Steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I don't know if you just saw that there. But there's Paul saying... Brethren, be ye steadfast, which is one of the best words to describe hoopamon, or what we could say tensile strength. Unbending, no matter what the difficulty, you be steadfast through it. You continue, no matter the difficulty. And then what's the next word? Unmovable. Now, I didn't change it. I, I could have made it immovable, which is a better word than unmovable. Same word, just so you know. Just, it's a translation issue here. But I was respectful, uh, and I didn't change it, even though I was tempted. Steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I love that statement, always abounding. Why do you need your feet on this rock? Why do you need tensile strength within your soul, and you need to be steadfast? Why? Because if you're not, all it takes is one little evil tiding, and you're under. And if any of you have been in this situation, you know that you can be full of heart and strength to deliver the gospel and to do the work of the kingdom. And all it takes is one little peep from the enemy. And you're paralyzed once again. You're inward. You're thinking about, oh, woe is me. Self-pity suddenly just collapses on you like a wave. You give in to fear, anxiety. Suddenly, discouragement and despair as your your companion, as you're laying there in your bed with a box of Kleenex. Can't believe this is my reality. Well, get up out of that bed and stick your feet squarely on that rock again. And I want you to get anxiety and fear out in the name of Jesus. They have no right to be there. They are a squatter, and this is not their territory. This belongs to Jesus Christ. And I can guarantee you that anxiety and fear have nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. I can also guarantee you that confusion, doubt, discouragement, and despair have nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. So if you find them sort of hanging out with you, get rid of them. Disassociate yourself with them. They have no place in the life of a Christian. None. The life of a Christian, steadfastness, immovability, always abounding. There is nothing that can take you down. There is nothing, no matter how dark it is, no matter how grim the news is, it cannot take you down because you know on whom you stand. Wherefore, 
the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. So I could give you a quick list of things that you could do. Give your life to Jesus Christ. With radical abandon. As I always say, you can, you can trump the law of gravity if you enter into a plane. Because the, lo- the plane functions on the law of aerodynamics, which is a higher law. And so the secret to being in Christ is to be in Christ, just like it is to be in a plane. If you try and hang out on the corner of the wing, I only want a corner of the wing of Jesus Christ. Guess what? When that plane takes off, you're going to fall. Because you can't hang on the corner of a wing and expect to make it over the Atlantic Ocean. You can't try and hang on the outside and go, I just want a little of Jesus. You need to be in Jesus. If you're in, you're all in. Every bit of you. You can't have one of your body parts hanging out. Guess what? You'll be sucked out. Won't you? Some of you have seen those movies, you know, where the, the door opens. Someone's pulled out. Well, that's you. You need to be all in. That means every aspect of your life given to Jesus Christ. That's just basic Christianity. This isn't extreme Christianity. That's basic Christianity. You yield to God. Whatever he asks, you say, you're my king. I do what you saved me. I'll do anything you ask. You do these things and you abide in Jesus Christ. You remain in him. You continue to yield, in him, you yield to him. And guess what? You shall never fall. That is the promise that goes with it. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I don't know if any of you are trying to argue this inside of you. But I do not know how you can argue this concept scripturally. It is over and over and over again. Here's the issue that most of us have. We consult our experience. Now, the reason I'm pointing behind me is because I say this one illustration over and over again. Many of you have heard it. But there's three characters, fact, faith, and experience. Experience is behind you. And it's always saying, hey, hey, look at me. Fact is revealed in the word of God. Whatever God says, it's fact. You can take it to the bank, it's good. Fact, these three are trying to walk the ridgepole. You know, a very steep roof. You know, it's a very delicate operation, but fact doesn't hesitate. just walks it straight. Faith, as long as he stays focused on fact, is able to walk it. It's extraordinary. As long as you remain focused on fact and say, I believe it. I believe he's right. You will walk that ridgepole. Without wavering, without staggering. Here's the problem. You have something behind you known as experience. And it's clawing at you saying, hey, consult me. I have all sorts of important things to tell you. Remember two years ago when you tried this and that and God failed you? Don't listen to it for a second. God is true. Every experience that attempts to defy the word of God is a liar. Do not consult it. Do not listen to it. If faith turns around and consults experience, not only does experience fall off the roof, but so does faith. 
The secret to faith is to remain focused and fixed on fact. You remain focused and fixed on fact, here's the secret. Experience begins to line up. Your experience will walk the ridgepole as long as you stop consulting it. Don't turn around and listen to it. You stay focused on fact. That's your secret as a Christian. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. You notice that that seems to be a theme in Scripture. I mean, this is like a bad situation, in other words. I think God's saying, it doesn't matter how bad it gets. I can't think of many other things worse than this, okay? But my kindness shall not depart from thee. You know that he's not going to forget you in that moment? He's not going to say, oh, no, I forgot one of my kids out there. He knows where every single one of you already knows every detail about your situation. And no matter what's happening, his kindness shall not depart from you. Neither shall the covenant of peace be removed, saith the Lord. Oh, whoa, whoa, saith the Lord. So we got a promise, and he can't lie. That hath mercy on thee. Okay, we're going to finish with this one. I like it. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem... So the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. It's a good one to meditate upon because there's a lot of depth in that one. Jerusalem is a picture of the bride. And there are mountains just in the geography of natural, physical Israel. And and in Jerusalem, there are mountains that surround it. And God says, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people. For how long? You know, for just, you know, as long as uh, this next generation. This is good for the taking forever and ever. That's our God. He's unchanging. In him is no uh, variableness, no shadow of turning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a rock. And he says, fasten yourself to me. And no matter what winds and rains come against you, you can always be certain that you cannot be moved. You will not be put to shame. This is a promise from heaven to you. Stand on it, and you will never regret such a decision.